Mexico is moving to ban U.S. biotech corn from human consumption, which would reduce the economic output of the U.S. by $74 billion, give or take. This economic food fight leads us to ask, can the world be made to accept the free trade of food? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Yes, welcome to the 1331st edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or hey, perhaps you're among our friends way down there in Fremantle who are streaming the Food Chain Podcast at metrofarm.com. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, the United States appears to be getting into a food fight with Mexico over corn. Regulators in Mexico are moving to ban genetically re-engineered corn for human consumption. This ban would protect Mexican consumers from the perceived dangers of eating U.S. biotech corn and would encourage the growth of Mexicans' domestic corn production. This ban of biotech corn sounds like a very good deal for Mexican farmers, but... The biotech corn ban does not sound like a very good deal for the American farmers who have adopted fully the biotech uh, corn production technologies. In fact, the folks at the free market Mercatus Center say the ban would cause the economic output of the United States to fall approximately $74 billion and lose 32,000 annual jobs would be lost. U.S. corn growers would lose about $13.61 billion over a 10-year period, and the rail industry alone would lose an additional $3.3 billion. And so when it comes to free trade of corn between the U.S. and Mexico, what appears to be good for the goose does not look so good for the gander. This economic food fight leads us to ask, can the world be made to accept the free trade of food? Well, here to help us uh, think up an answer, we have Christine McDaniels, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Washington, George Mason University, and also a fellow at the Clayton Yoder Institute of International Trade at the University of Nebraska. Christine, welcome to the food chain. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Great to be here. And here is in the Lincoln, Nebraska airport. So, ladies and gentlemen, when you hear airport noises in the background, it's a real live airport that Christine is at. And <laughs> we thank you for joining us from Lincoln today. Now, thank as you so I, much. Yeah, as I understand it, you're a libertarian free market think tanker. Is that a good description? Yeah, so Mercatus is Latin for market. And uh, we at Mercatus uh, like to look for market-based solutions to trade, uh, to policy problems. And I'm an international trade economist, so for international trade, you know, market-based solutions um, are always um, preferable. And you know, and, and Clayton Yider, Ambassador Yider, also um, who um, you know was U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, uh, he was also a very uh, market-oriented solution-focused um, uh, advocate for, for farming solutions. Good. And with respect to market solutions, I've often thought that uh, whenever you subsidize something, you distort its value. 
And once you start distorting value, you're on the road to perdition. Is that a fair? Is that a fair <laughs> thought to have? <laughs> well, yeah, right. I mean, because um, subsidies, you know, it's um, when you're taking money from basically from taxpayers and putting them into a particular industry uh, that takes uh, money and resources away from other sectors, and and you're pumping up uh, another sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's really no free lunch, right? So everybody wants to, everyone wants to live off the government, but they forget the government really lives off of all of them. Yeah. Now, with respect to world trade and the whole notion of free trade and fair trade and everything, it looks like we're, we're just in a mess all over the world with respect to trade and, and to supply chains and everything else. Are you seeing the same thing, or am I just watching the wrong TV news? <laughs> well, it, it does um, look like that. Whenever trade is in the news lately, it is unfortunately not because of new market opening, but rather because of new trade restrictions or new trade tensions. This has probably been a long time coming, but it sort of the floodgates kind of broke um, in 2018 during the last administration when then President Trump, you know, pulled us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, re, you know, and then we renegotiated NAFTA. He put, uh, he also put on the uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum port, aluminum imports, and that unleashed um, a flood, another whole floodgate of retaliatory tariffs that U.S. exporters had to face. Um, and, of course, China and China tariffs. Mm -hmm. So there has been uh, a lot more tariffs um, in the past five years or so than I've, I've actually, I think, I've ever seen in my whole career. <laughs> there you go. Now, with respect, with respect to tariffs, what a tariff is is a, a weapon against free trade almost, correct? Well, so it's right. A, a tariff is a tax on imports. So let's say you import... You know, widget from abroad, that's a dollar. And if the tariff is 10%, then uh, the importer has to pay a dollar ten. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a tax on imports. Uh, and it is um, often used uh, to try to um, discourage U.S. Uh, importers, uh, U.S. consumers from, from buying uh, imports. In the old, old days, it used to be a tariff, it used to, tariffs were a revenue raising mechanism for governments. But but um, these days, really, for the past, well, since the, since the 80s, 90s, 2000s, um, for most countries, uh, tariffs have been going down for a long time. Um, the U.S. tariff, average tariff, um, you know, is very low, about 2, 3, 4 percent. Um, and the U.S. doesn't use tariffs as a revenue generator anymore like it did, you know, in the early 1900s. Now, with respect to a world in which trade is really made possible, um, I, I was hoping that having you on the radio, we could talk about the World Trade Organization and as, as a means of conducting trade between nations because uh, it seems like as we are facing this issue with uh, Mexico right now, there's always going to be somebody that's trying to get the best deal on, on a free trade deal. How does the World Trade Organization uh, address uh, disparities and disagreements? Well, so the World Trade Organization, um, a lot of people think of 
the WTO as sort of its own body. And it is. It's a, it's a building in, in Geneva. But it really is just a body of its members, right? So WTO doesn't really have any power on its own. It's really the... Um, it's really just there to sort of administer um, things around the edges that its members agreed to, you know, in the, in the mid nineties. But one thing they agreed to, um, you know, and it, they sat down and agreed to the, the rules of the road on trade, so to speak. And then they created this dispute settlement uh, mechanism. Kind, kind of, of like kind story. of like the sheriff then, right? <laughs> yeah. Kind of like a sheriff. And, Basically, and this was a way for kind of like checks and balances that they built in, right? So it was it was basically members saying to each other, look, these are the rules we all agree on. And by the way, if I stray from my commitments or if you stray from your commitments, we hereby agree that we can take each other to WTO dispute settlement and, um, and let them decide who's in the wrong and then um, go from there. And you recently wrote an article, I think for Yoder, uh, regarding the some uh, a problem we're having with that dispute settlement uh, agreement, correct? Well, yeah. Um, so it's been a, a long time coming, but the the WTO dispute settlement um, mechanism has there there's there's been a few fissures a few cracks in 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 the in the uh, foundations if you will that have been kind of opening up over time mostly over china and uh and the us has been in the forefront of pointing that out um and the us has been um really not the only country but the one in the the forefront un- very unhappy with some of the um, ruling out of the out of the um, appellate body of the WTO. So if you take a case of the WTO, the WTO panel will make a ruling, but then the loser can appeal, and then the appellate body um, will sometimes affirm the panel's decision or overturn the panel's decision. And there have been a number of cases where the appellate body has overturned the panel's decision, and the U.S. Um, feels that uh, the appellate body has gone above and beyond its mandate, has um, has um, over overly interpreted the law, and um, and has expressed dismay and concern over this for many years now. And uh, then at some point, the U.S. Um, basically just said, "Well, we're not we're not going to appoint any more judges to the appellate body uh, until you know." the whole world can sit down and, and, and have a real good talk about this. Um, and um, so now there's basically no appellate body, which means that, you know, you can take a case, but the loser, you know, the, the loser can appeal, but you're really appealing into the void. So okay. it's basically handicapped the entire dispute settlement okay. process. And we can certainly see how that get messy after a very short period of time. I'd like to go through, you know, the three, ba- you listed three basic rules by which these member nations agree to cooperate. Uh, the first one is that you cannot treat imported goods less favorably than d- domestically produced goods. One, one example of that I can see is the labeling of beef or the not labeling of beef. Um, so, 
to me, that means that uh, uh, all beef is the same, though it may not be the same. Is that correct? Right. So under this principle of uh, national treatment, if you will, that's exactly right. It says that countries cannot treat domestically produced goods any more favorably than it treats imported goods. And so, so what, you know, whatever you're going to do, whatever you're going to do to help out domestically produced goods, you have to offer the same things to import. Um, and also whatever you're going to do to maybe disadvantage imported goods, you know, you have to do for domestically produced goods, but it's, it's usually the way around. But um, for food, for labeling, um, countries can label, but it just means that you have to apply the same labeling rules to everything. And there you go. So everybody has to be treated the same, and that's yeah. a good place to start uh, <laughs> a, a discussion. And um, so that's what we're going to pick up when we come back. And this is the Food Chain Radio Program. Today we're talking about world trade and the disputes we get in with the trading of food between one nation and another. The dispute we're looking at right now is a dispute between Mexico and the United States over genetically modified corn. Uh, Mexico is insisting that it doesn't want uh, that corn to be fed to human beings. And the United States is saying there's nothing wrong with our corn. Corn is corn. Uh, when we get back, how do we go about resolving these disputes? Right back. And now, more of What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. So, with respect to the agreement that we make when we, as a nation, join the World Trade Organization, is that we're going to have a pretty much of a level playing field. And, and um, But that doesn't mean that, that uh, it is a level playing field. With respect to uh, the European Union, for example, uh, we're kind of in a, a bind with them as well, are we not, Christine McDaniel? Well, possibly. Um, the European Union has announced their new farm-to-fork policy, or at least their aim to implement this sort of green, green food policy. And there's a number of provisions uh, and, and policies and regulations that they've laid out. But one of them it does have to do with uh, cross-pollinated uh, seed varieties, like genetically modified uh, food. And it's not clear whether or to what extent this means they will ban genetically modified food Um the it, it it looks they have a number of groups within Europe that um, are interested in in doing that. Not everybody in Europe is interested in doing that. Um, so this, in, in addition to Mexico saying that they're planning on banning GM corn, you know, we also have Europe out there um, promoting particular food policies that it appears. Uh, uh, to be leading down mm -hmm. that same road. So it would appear as though to the World Trade Organization, at least, corn is corn is corn. And that um, as you treat your corn, you must treat everybody else's corn. Correct? Right. So uh, there is um, 
there is um, some rules in the WTO that, um, you know, countries are, of course, free to pursue public policy and, and their own domestic goals, especially around national security and health and whatnot. Uh, but they must do so in the least trade restrictive way. Um, and also, especially on health and, and food safety issues, uh, it, it not only needs to be done in the least trade restrictive way, but it also needs to uh, align with science and scientific um, evidence. And so this has been a long standing disagreement between the U.S. and the EU on the scientific evidence behind this. And it basically comes down to um, something called the precautionary principle. And it's, it's just a, it's just the term that basically says, it reflects how um, the EU t- um, will tend to focus on, um, on the side of caution and, and, um, and if in doubt, not do it. And the U.S. will, side, will tend to focus on the side of, um, well, we're going to do it until, you know, it's, it's proven we shouldn't do it. I mean, that's a very... Mm-hmm. Uh, very basic way of describing it. But, uh, I mean, of course, the U.S., um, you know, uh, there's a number of scientific studies behind everything the U.S. does. But um, but there's also, you know, the EPA has, has shown that that um, in the quantities digested, that there is um, that there is no health or, um, or health human health harm from GM corn, for instance, and there's no environmental harm from GM corn or other GM foods. So, so the, the dispute you know, then is kind of yeah. a, a legal one. Then one co- it's kind of a yeah a legal one. One body says it's bad. Different. One body says it's bad. And the other body says no, it's not bad. You can't prove it is, uh, and so. Does that go to a dispute in which there is no, um, no nobody to render a final judgment? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of unclear on where where this is going to end, and um, and you know it is somewhat telling that the countries that um, do these bans, um, they are also the same countries where the uh, political leadership is interested in appeasing you know particular small medium sized farmers, right? And of course, small medium sized farmers. Um, have a hard time competing with, um, you know, the very large, innovative, productive U.S. farmers. Especially so, in the production of commodities. Well, exactly, exactly. And so, um, and so in the case of Mexico, you know, they have a number of these small, medium, medium-sized farmers down in particular areas of the South that, um, you know, they, they are, uh, most of them are nowhere near the level of um, yield per acre uh, that the U.S. farmers are at. So then this seems to be a move by Mexico to perhaps um, restore corn uh, production in Mexico. 20 years ago, plus a few months, I hosted a radio, a food chain radio show uh, with the title, The Missing Maze of Mexico, uh, with Dr. Ignacio Chapala, who pointed out that the production of, of uh, the new GMO corn at the time would displace all of the traditional farmers of Mexico and that uh, a lot of the native races of corn were being lost because of that. And so here 20 years later, perhaps uh, that sentiment has reached a point where 
the Mexican government is saying, well, we're going to fix it now. So this is a, a pretty interesting dispute um, because it, it really is a trade fight, isn't it, between the U.S. and Mexico over corn? It, it could turn into that. It's still, it's still yet to be seen how this is going to go. Um, the, the actual decree, you know, the announcement um, by the Mexican government was put out December 2020, and they said they plan to phase out um, this glyphosate herbicide and GM corn for human consumption by 2024. And, you know, so we still have a, a couple more years. Um, or maybe a little, over, mm-hmm. maybe a little over a year, but the meanwhile the U.S. Agriculture Secretary went down to Mexico and re- has reported to have said that he has been assured by his Mexican counterparts that this will not affect U.S. corn exports. But U.S. farmers don't seem to be that convinced uh, or that reassured, um, given that. The uh, Mexico's regulator has been making moves that um, approving and, and not approving particular traits that actually would affect U.S. corn exports. Okay. So it's really time that you know uh, that the U.S. Uh, requests consultation with with Mexico on this to to um, you know really flesh out uh, what their aims are. Well, now for an interesting question for you. How would what would be a market solution for a conflict such as this Mexico U.S. corn conflict? What would be? Is there such a thing as a market solution for this problem? Well, that is a good question, Michael. I, I mean, a market oriented, a market based solution would just be to put all the information on the label for everybody, and then let people buy what they want to buy. Um, you know, if it, whether it's GM corn or non-GM corn. I mean, that's the way the U.S. Is, has been doing that for a long time now. And, you know, that's the way the Olson family does it. We look at the label and see what's in the label, and uh, that's how we make our judgment. If you want yeah, to yeah, pay more, uh, then you can get the good stuff. And, and if you want to pay less, you can get the less good stuff. But... Uh, you know, or they, just different stuff. I mean, however, you, however the consumer, you know, it allows for consumers to have different preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just noticed in China there was a huge food processing company that uh, was mislabeling their food, their foods, and um, the words swept through the country, and they lost five billion dollars in sales. And so, people are pretty much in t- attuned to you know, what's what's in food these days. Um, and there you go. And speaking of China, once China was allowed into the World Trade Organization, it did very good. But over the years, we've noticed that um, it, it was continually being accused of, of um, rigging the agreements by manipulating their currencies. And I know you've done a lot of work with economics and whatnot. So how was China manipulating its currencies to get the best deal on on its trade? Well, I can't speak directly to uh, China's currency um, manipulation uh, strategies or efforts. Um, I mean, technically speaking, um, 
you know, the, the one has been floating you know, at the market rate um, for a while. I mean, there was, there was some, um, there were some allegations that they were fixing their currency um, in a way that would benefit their, um, that would boost their trade uh, surplus with the U.S. Um, but frankly, a lot of different countries um, do manipulate their currency um, for di- at different periods, for different points of time, and sometimes it has a you know a, a side effect on trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the one has been uh, been the, according to the um, the Treasury Department, the one has been uh, market driven for quite some time now. And you know, frankly, I think the the, mar- the exchange rate is really the least of our problems on, when it comes to China trade. Probably, when you look at China. With respect to food trade, um, what do you see? Well, um, so China is has demonstrated that they will use trade, and including especially agriculture trade, as a weapon uh, when they see it in their interest. So, for instance, they had. Um, there's a, there's a few different examples. Uh, one recently that comes to mind is they had a big shipment from, oh, what country was it? It was a big shipment of bananas from, I think, a particular Latin American country. And this particular country, uh, I guess, did not vote with China in the way that China wanted in a particular UN, on a UN issue. And and that, that just so happened that country's exports of bananas to China sat at the port for I don't know, about 10 to 10 days to three weeks. And what do you think happens to bananas when they sit at a port for a couple weeks? They get very ripe. Yeah. And there you go. Uh, Yeah. Um, And I think uh, Australia had a recent um, uh, instance uh, when COVID, uh, when countries were requesting for the World Health Organization to do a thorough, complete, and independent investigation of the origin of COVID, um, Australia actually led that request um, that offended China and because they felt that it was, you know, a, a direct offense to them. And um, and it just so happened that Australia had a big shipment of lobster, of fresh lobsters that they were shipping to China. And that sat at the, the dock um, for uh, a time that really threatened an expiry on, um, on those on those lobsters so in fact it was a very hot yeah i, I think it, it was a kind of a goosey situation mm-hmm. so um so china has demonstrated that they will hold up at your agriculture um, uh, shipments to them at the port if they are unhappy with some of your foreign policy or other other actions well, that, that's a lot different than um you know one country trying to get the best deal for something over another country, or, or for example, uh, the U.S. trying to sell Mexico geo- genetically modified corn. Uh, that's an issue. But what we're talking about then is a political issue. How on earth would the World Trade Organization resolve political issues like that? Well, then, I mean, in the Australia lobster case, for instance, I mean, of course, Australia could file a WTO case. And, you know, those, case, those cases can take a long time, sometimes years. Um, and 
if the you know presumably the WTO would um, you know if if there was no other real real reason for China to have done it and they could prove that then let's say you know the WTO ruled in, in Australia's favor well then great you know maybe China owes Australia uh, you know some back pay or something but by then it's too late right right <laughs> because right. by then you've got you know a few years now of Australia not being able to to um, take advantage of the market access provisions that both countries had agreed to years ago. So it's really the political issues that probably are the most difficult issues to resolve uh, by a member organization, because when the members are at each other's throats, you know, politically, uh, it's going to be really difficult to get them to, to agree on anything then. Exactly. Good. Okay. Um, China is a very fascinating place, of course, because um, it's trying to figure out how to be a, a free market player with a very controlled uh, economy. And um, there you go. So with respect to uh, our relationship with uh, the European Union, we'll ha we have a, what appears to be a dispute there. It's roughly similar to the dispute we're having with Mexico, whereas uh, we w want to sell them uh, our food that is grown one particular way, and uh, for health reasons or for uh, food sovereignty reasons, uh, for all kinds of reasons, they don't want to become reliant on those kinds of foods. So. That is the dispute on the table uh, in many, many different cases around the world uh, that the World Trade Organization is responsible for straightening out, fixing. Um, and is that what you do? Do you advise like the World Trade Organization or governments, Christine McDaniel, do you tell them how you can approach these things with a fair market or a, an open market solutions? Uh, no, no, I, I don't uh, uh, directly advise the international institutions on this. Um, what, what we do at Mercatus is we work with policymakers in the executive branch and Congress to inform them, educate them, uh, present our research on market-oriented solutions to, to, to tr trade policy issues and, and other economic policy issues. Um, and sometimes, of course, people from those other organizations will read our material and call us up and say, hey, what did you mean about this? And we talk, but, um, but that's pure, purely voluntary. Yeah. So your job is to start the conversation, which we will exactly. do when we get back from this quick break. Folks, this is the Food Chain Radio Program. We have Christine McDaniel, and we're talking trade from the Lincoln, Nebraska airport. Do stay tuned. So much to say, so little time to say it, on The Food Chain with Michael Olson. Well, we are back with Christine McDaniels. She is a uh, senior fellow. What is the fellow, Christine? Uh, just a name for a uh, member of the research faculty. Okay, good. And uh, you're a, a fellow with both the um, Mercatus Center for, at George Mason University and also the Clayton Yoder Institute of International Trade at the University of Nebraska. Uh, and you are in Lincoln, Nebraska right now, sitting in the airport talking to the Food Chain Radio Program, for which we are most grateful. 
because as we look around our world right now, uh, things seems, seem to be a, a mess and getting worse uh, because we have uh, dis- trade disputes like the one that we're facing between the United States and Mexico and the United States and the European Union. Uh, we're also at war with um, <laughs> in a nation that is the breadbasket of the world. Um, so how do you see that war in Ukraine sh- sh- changing things, changing how we do things, Christine? Well, a lot of these are still very much open-ended. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, Michael, in, in many ways, Eastern Europe is the breadbasket for that region of the world. And with that area, that region of the world being under conflict um, and Russia. Um, threatening and sometimes blocking or not allowing uh, uh, shipments to move through the usual container shipment route, that leads to uh, disruption in, in agriculture trade. And, uh, and that ends up leading to, you know, greater uncertainty and hence higher prices for, especially for these um, agricultural commodities. So if you're a a farmer, you know, um, and selling these commodities, that's good news for you, right, because you have uh, now higher prices. But for these countries that uh, where where these shipments were destined for, um, definitely bad news for them. They're they're not only not getting what they thought they were getting on time, but they're having to pay higher prices for it. And just for the whole rest of the world, paying higher prices for uh, agricultural commodities, so it's also inflationary. Uh, but you know, and for agriculture, it's one of those, especially the commodities. You know, uh, farmers don't like too much uncertainty, right? They're pl- they're planning now for the next couple of years. I mean, your listeners know this way better than I do. Um, so all this uncertainty can be, you know, very unsettling. Mm-hmm. You write about the vulnerability of American agriculture. By, simply by virtue of the fact that we export much more than we import. Um, and so our ability to wheel and deal is is kind of limited by the fact that um, we're, we're such great exporters with respect to our food. Yes, the U.S. is a major agricultural export. I mean, we have, um, you know, uh, obviously a very large land, uh, natural land endowment, if you will, and um, and not only a lot of, of farmland, but the climate is good for it. Um, and our, uh, the agricultural community has um, taken full advantage uh, not only of these natural resource endowments, but also of innovation and technology. In fact, just um, at the Yire Institute this week, the University of Nebraska, I'm um, walking through um, the library there. There are these students who had this huge whiteboard up, um, and they were going, they were breaking down the, um, the science of particular seed varieties. So, I mean, this, you know, the innovation is here. Farmers are, uh, farm uh, and, and agricultural communities taking advantage of it. I mean, that is what has uh, been a key driving factor in the very high productivity levels of, of U.S. agriculture. And, you know, there is just no, no one comes close to um, the level of productivity and innovation that you see across U.S. farmland. Yeah, I think you wrote that we have export surpluses with 48 countries. Uh, yes, 
47, 48 countries, we have a, um, and, and that's just with um, uh, our, the, the major countries. But yeah, we have a um, ag surplus, and that that really puts um, the uh, U.S. agricultural community at uh, great risk because if something were to happen in a trade dispute or t- trade disruption, and um, that and another uh, country wanted to retaliate against the United States, you know, our export, our agriculture exports to these 47 countries alone. Um, wouldn't even you know they they could they could retaliate against us in terms of just on agriculture exports and there was very little we could do in in response um, and so U.S. agriculture is heavily dependent on trade and they're heavily dependent on on countries following the rules. And a great example of that is Mexico. Exactly, uh, those U.S. Mexican Canadian negotiators. Um, fought tirelessly for the agreement they got. U.S. negotiators in particular fought, fought tirelessly. Uh, you'll recall that sugar and corn were two sectors that had the longest phase-outs in NAFTA. In other words, those were the most sensitive sectors. Um, and the U.S. did open up the sugar market a little bit, um, uh, well, actually a lot to Mexico. And, and Mexico opened up their, um, you know, their, their corn market to U.S. farmers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that came at um, a very high negotiation cost for both countries. But clearly that has been a win-win for both countries as well. So now for Mexico to backtrack on that, you know, would really be devastating, not only for U.S. corn growers, but also for Mexico. Remember, 44% of Mexican households live at or underneath the poverty line. And food is their main source of consum- of, uh, of what they spend their money on. So um, the ban, if they go through with this, would lead to higher food prices by about 15, 20 percent. Um, and that would hit, of course, the lower, lower income households in Mexico the hardest. So really, this is just sort of shooting themselves in the foot. And it would really hit our farmers even harder. You said that, uh, I think you wrote that all told, we would lose somewhere in the neighborhood of $74 billion in business. Yeah, so the uh, U.S. economy uh, stands to lose from this. Um, and then also, the, um, of course, the, just the, the U.S. industry alone would stand to lose from the, um, from, from the ban in the uh, billions of dollars. So for the U.S., the U.S. economy over a 10-year period, a ban on GM corn exports would cause the U.S. economy to shrink by about $74 billion. And the um, and overall, we lose about over thirty thousand jobs uh, because remember, uh, corn growers and all you know linked to so many other sectors in the economy. So as those U.S. corn shipments to Mexico would decrease, um, all that other all those other um, upstream and downstream linked sectors, that activity would also decrease. And then the corn farming. Um, would the, the the corn industry would lose about four three to four billion um, just in the very first year, followed by uh, five and a half billion the second year, and over the ten year period, the industry would be projected to lose about thirteen fourteen billion dollars. Wow, so a big hit 
major hit to to the Midwest, especially. Um, As a fair market advocate, what is the alternative to fair to fair and open market solutions? It's somebody making a decision, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the the alternative is um, is you know political actors, um, you know, acting in the interest of very small sectors of their economy to try to stay in power, you know, and, and of course, I mean, all political leaders are, are, um, are vulnerable to this, uh, you know, believe it. I mean, the, you know, your member of Congress is probably gets visited, you know, a number of times each month by special interests, you know, and, and just like every member of Congress, just like the White House, um, everybody wants, you know, a little bit, a little bit special treatment, but, that's why we have these rules, these principles, um, as you mentioned earlier, the national treatment, you know, you cannot, countries cannot treat domestically produced goods better than imported goods, uh, and you have to treat everybody fairly. And, um, they seem, they seem you know, to be very, yeah, they seem to be very, very simple rules. Uh, it's, it's almost like, uh, what you would, want to have if you're going to get married to somebody you you (laughs) cannot exactly right (laughs) yeah because you're entering into a long-term relationship right and um you know it's reciprocity you know if you you know and um you treat each other with with the same you know um respect and and trust and fairness um then that way you can depend on each other moving forward let's see you cannot treat imported goods less favorably than domestically produced goods so uh your needs are my needs something like that what you accord to one you must accord to all so as i treat you um i must treat me as well i guess and domestic policy goals shall be achieved in the least trade restrictive manner so uh, what concerns me is fine as long as it doesn't f- adversely affect you. So that's, it is really like uh, establishing a long-term relationship with, with somebody else. It's just now the alternative is that somebody is making a decision. And it depends on for what ends the decisions are being made. And that seems to be where things get fouled up, in my estimation. Am I wrong? Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Well, somebody's making a decision, and it's not for a market reason. It's a, for a political reason. Uh, you know, I think of, of Chairman Mao and his great cultural revolution and the decisions he made that led to the starvation of so many people. And they were just political decisions that weren't really based on anything, but they were political decisions. And it seems right. like it seems like had he been focusing on market you know, solutions like you advocate, maybe they wouldn't have had so many people starve to death. Well, that, exactly. And, and um, you know, there's that saying that, um, that, that capitalism, you know, in the free market economy is, is um, you know, has a lot of problems. But the, 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 the biggest problem is that all the, all the <laughs> other alternatives are way, way worse. <laughs> you know, 
So um, the thing about capitalism and market market based solutions is, you know, it's it, it sometimes there are winners and there are losers, right? But um, but but there's always going to be change, right? And whether that change, whether that um, you know you might win one day, lose the next, whether that's from trade or technology or just progress, um, you know, as long as there are no um, key barriers keeping you down from um, getting back up and, and doing your best tomorrow. Um, you know, that's, that's the, that's what's kept um, the American economy, you know, propelling forward. Um, and so of course, you know, we could just turn inward, inward and, and uh, try to keep out all of those, those cheap imports that hurt particular pockets of the economy. Um, but, you know, we could also go back to, um, you know, we could also go back to not even driving cars and that would have helped, you know, all the um, the um, people that rode horses uh, to, to carry people around. So, you know, this is just a sort of a, a fundamental thing about um, progress. There's winners and losers. And then there's parts about the authoritarian regimes, right? So countries that have these leaders that make decisions based on wanting to stay in power, um, you know, they're there. Uh, that puts the overall economic progress of the country at risk. And, um, you yeah, know, that's what we've seen in Russia over the years. That's what we're seeing in China. Um, and this is very unfortunate because, you know, with China being one of the largest countries, um, it's, um, you know, whatever happens in China is definitely going to affect the rest of the world. Do you think it's possible that um, the world can be made to accept the free trade of food? Or that, will there always be these disputes? as we are facing with Mexico and the European Union? Is it just... Well, if history is our guide, I think there probably always will be some disputes because, of course, there's always going to be particular um, farming sectors uh, that, you know, are going to um, to want special treatment or they're, they're going to feel that they need um, special treatment or that they cannot compete with imports. So they're always going to be... Um, there will always be some some um, restrictions or at least some some appetite for, for no pun intended, for, for some restrictions. Um, and, um, of course, you know, the U.S. is no uh, stranger to that. We have a farm bill um, that we subsidize our farmers um, in many ways, just um, the EU does as well. Uh, there's a whole chapter on what subsidies are allowed and not allowed in the WTO, Back in the 90s, everyone sat down and agreed, you know, what the red lines were, and and those were the rules we agreed to abide by, and and here we are. Um, but of course, there's always going to be some some pressure uh, to, uh, from particular interest groups to do more than what we agreed to. Well, Christine McDaniel, thank you so much for joining us from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the Clayton Yoder Institute at uh, University of Nebraska. And uh, thank you all for tuning in today. Remember Michael Olson's second law of the food chain. The farther we go from the source of our food, the less control we have over our food. Thank you, Christine. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at MetroFarm.com for a listen. 
now go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. <laughs>